Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Greasy! Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. And hello and welcome once again to American Tennis. This is Coach Chuck Creasy, and every Wednesday on J.P. Weber's Yellow Ball Network, and thank you for doing that, J.P., Daggone, this is already six years, and uh, it's every every Wednesday. You know, trying to get ready for these programs, it is just about as hard as trying to get ready for a tennis match. you got to go through the pre-match stuff, and you've got to do all the work and everything. But daggone it, it's good to be able to do this. What the heck, you know, and I really enjoy it, and I'm really, really happy I'm going to – talk i'm going to cut through the chase here and try to get right to our guest because we've got a great guest on today uh dennis ralston and i'm going to be bringing him here on here in a second but i just wanted to tell you uh just gotta mention john denise's program tomorrow and then coach randy blumendahl's um coaching corner program on sunday but folks again the idea here is come on now everybody's got to do their part, stand up, speak out, say those things that need to be said. And, uh, you know, as long as you address issues, not people, and stay professional, you can say whatever you want to this United States of America. And, folks, we've got to do what we can do to uh, keep tennis not just relevant, but daggone it, to protect the history, the heritage of the game, and to – I, I don't know. We're gonna we're gonna get deep into this in a minute, but uh, I wanted to make sure I got Dennis Ralston on the line here. Dennis, uh, I think I got you on there. Are you here? I'm here, Chuck. Good to talk to you. Hey, listen, thanks. I cannot believe how busy you still are. You taught till nine o'clock last night, and then you just got off the court for four hours. I'm, what are you What are you up to now? Are you How many hours a week are you putting in on the court? Well, when it doesn't rain here, we've had nothing but rain most of since November, but uh, 20, 22, 20, you know, just depends. But um, unfortunately, I didn't play when there was a lot of money in the game. And uh, so I'm one of those guys that 
that's you know still has to work, which is fine. I enjoy it. I really do enjoy teaching, and and I got a great group of people here in Austin that I'm working with, and so it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's still the same game. It's nothing, you know. It's just the fundamentals and and building on those and encouraging people to practice and and uh, finding out about all the people here that hate the no ad hate the scoring system of one set for a, a doubles match hate the tiebreaker for the third set so i i know i'm getting into stuff we'll talk about but uh it's uh it's just fun to still be out i you know we're going to get deep into this but I, i'm not going to tell anybody how old you are but dennis you were absolutely one of the people I dreamed about being in the 60s when I first started tennis, playing tennis in 1963, your picture was on the cover of Sports Illustrated somewhere in 65, 66. I think you got to the finals at Wimbledon in 1966. And, and folks, listen to this. 14 Grand Slam finals. 14 Grand Slam finals, the one in, in singles, but nine finals in uh, doubles and five, five titles, I believe, five Grand Slam doubles titles, you know, in French and the French Wimbledon and U.S. Open four times, um, and, and a lot of times with doubles, different partners, and then four mixed doubles titles. And then we want to talk, I'm, I'm going to pin you down in a minute here to talk about your 72 captaining of the famous Romanian Davis Cup finals here in a minute but uh the bottom line on the thing is your picture was on the front of sports illustrated i remember i went to the park every day and for, uh, I, we didn't have many teachers in the whole city of indianapolis so i've dr sid e parks was the guy you know i go to the park sit on the wall and i used to think man dennis ralston here you know and and you know, look, Dennis, um, of course, I had the privilege of coaching against you when you were at SMU. Uh, of course, you had all those years coaching Chris Everett to some of her Grand Slam titles. Now you're still teaching and loving the game. That's the biggest deal. And, I, you know, I tell people the best pay I ever got in my 20s was room, board, and experience. You know, and uh, my mama used to say, in your 20s you learn, 30s you invest your learning, 40s you We'll start getting some of the benefits, but you didn't. You didn't again talk about. I guess I'd like to start out. There's so many things we could we could bring up here about the great things you did. But could you start real quickly? I'd like to give people a background about how you started. In other words, look, J.P. Weber told me there was a story. You got on a bus from Bakersfield, California. You went to L.A. You just walked into the law. Los Angeles racket club and say, Hey, I need to play some tennis or something. Is that, you know, how did you get started? And then let's, can we talk a little bit about that and then just talk about the dip, you know, how it was before the open era there. So did we, did we, first of all, okay. did I hit everything pretty close? Did I hit most of your stuff pretty close? It was like dug up on the computer. You did a great job, Chuck. And, uh, okay. I I come from a tennis family. My mom and dad played, and and I have an older sister that's still playing. And uh, we started at the public parks in Bakersfield, and then the members got together and and bought some land, and then they built the Bakersfield Racquet Club, which is where I played most of my tennis. And uh, 
I started, my mom started me and then my dad and, and, uh, we had a lot of family battles, uh, singles and doubles. And, and I, my first goal was to beat my mom and then my sister and then my dad. And I finally got him when I was about 13 and he was a good player. He, he, uh, he played against Bobby Riggs and high school and, and beat Riggs and doubles. So, uh, he he was a very good player. He and I won the national father and son and at, at Longwood, and and uh, we won the hard court. So he had a huge serve and no backhand, but but uh, he we won the gold ball at Boston, and then he retired. He never played again after we won that. And uh, my mom was the champion of Nevada in the '40s. Of course, there weren't many people in Nevada in the '40s, but let alone tennis players. But uh, she was a very good player. She sliced and diced, and and she knew the game really well. And my sister played at Stanford, uh, and she's still playing on the the senior tournaments these these days all over the U.S. So, pretty much a tennis family. And I was lucky enough to have a club that that uh, supported me, and and they let me play against the men. And the men, you know, would would not go nuts if they lost to a junior. I mean, they beat the heck out of me for a long time. And, I got better and I got more challenging. I got to play left-handers that were good. And so I was lucky that it was a family club, kind of like what I have here in Austin at Gray Rock. It's a, it's really a, a good junior program, a good adult program, nice people. Nobody's, you know, too up in the air about things. And so it was a great atmosphere for me to grow up. And I did go to on the bus when I was 10. My folks put me on the bus Greyhound bus to LA to play at the LA tennis club. Um, so I took the bus to Hollywood and Vine where the Greyhound bus depot was. And then I got on a city bus to go to the LA tennis club that off of Coinga Boulevard. And I don't know how I did that, but I know I did it because I, I have a picture of when I walked into the LA tennis club and I said, hi, I'm Dennis Ralston. I'm here to play. And where do I stay? And so they got me a housing and they, you know, it was uh, kind of the start of my going to L.A. to play against some of the greatest guys that, that I ever saw play, Gonzalez and Kramer and all those guys. So it was uh, a great atmosphere. And then I kept doing better and better and played some more tournaments. And and I kind of finally just uh, won a big tournament in, in L.A. at the Southern Cal Men's when I was 17. And so I in the trophy presentation, they came out and they said, and here's your $500 towards your trip to Wimbledon. And I was 17, and I wanted to play at Wimbledon, but I never thought, you know, I'd ever have the opportunity. And so I won the men's title, which was a big, amazing thing for for 17-year-olds to do that. And then they said, here's your $500. Well, I started thinking, well, maybe I can go to Wimbledon. And, and when I'm, you know, that year. And so I got home and the racket club, they got together and raised the rest of the money. So I went to Wimbledon when I was 17, uh, missed wow. my high school grad and won the doubles, which really launched me into the major career of, of playing tennis. Well, you know, a couple of things, how far was Bakersfield ride on a bus? I'm thinking 10 years old, they put you on a bus by yourself at 10 years old. It's amazing. How far a ride was that? It's two hours, two and a half hours to L.A. Yeah, Two and a half the hours, bus. then you had to change buses as a 10-year-old. Can you imagine that now? Wow. Yeah. I think I think parents were, I don't know. They, they, I cannot imagine. Time. 
<laughs> different time. All our parents. Well, all our parents were World War II veterans, and I just remember those Eisenhower years and early Kennedy years. Uh, you know, everything sort of went crazy like late 60s, but before then it was safe. Kids could run the streets. But, I mean, folks, think about uh, That is just an amazing thing in itself. So you went to Southern Cal at that time, but here's the thing. You went to Wimbledon, won Wimbledon, and who who was your – was it Osuna? That you won Wimbledon with, or who did you win Wimbledon with in sixty in sixty seven? Chuck, it was Raphael Osuna, and uh, he yep. was a student. He had enrolled at SSC, USC, and and I hadn't decided on school yet. And when we won, that pretty much decided me. But I, I was always going to go to USC. And uh, the amazing thing about that Wimbledon win is our first round, we won nineteen seventeen in the fifth set. Against two guys, my God, English, English club players, and from that point on, it got easier until the semis, and then, uh, then we beat Labor and Bob Mark thirteen eleven in the fifth, and uh, oh so my, out of mind experience, I'd have to say. Oh, but what a memory! I I won a twenty to eighteen in, in the high school Indianapolis high school tennis. I won a twenty to eighteen in the third one time. But I, I, you know, you those are the ones you remember. But think about that nineteen seventeen. You'll never forget. I mean, my golly, the first round, you could have lost. Were you down match points? I bet you were down match points and things. We we were down break points, but it was it was our we were serving first, so it wasn't technically it wasn't a match point, but theoretically it was. I think three or four in the fifth set and. Uh, Supposedly, they had an easy ball because I saw one of the guys we played a couple of years ago in England, and and uh, he said, I, I gave you guys that match. I missed that ball on break point. And I said, yeah, well, thanks. And uh, so, yeah, you remember those, those kind of bizarre matches. And another interesting thing, Chuck, that, that people don't realize that Wimbledon, you have a locker room A for all the big stars and – and they have a locker room B for all the newbies and the wannabes and stuff. And so we were in locker room B because nobody knew who we were. And so after the first week, there was nobody left in locker room B except Osuna and myself. And the English officials came and said, wouldn't you like to move to locker room A? And then we said, well, no, we're fine right here. And we stayed. We're the only team ever to win or the first team to win out of locker room B in Wimbledon history. So I, I like that stat. Well, that's beautiful. One of the things that we're, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the no ad and the, the detriment that it is and players breaking through. But I've been arguing re- recently, and, and my good friend Randy Blumendahl said this. He said when players get better, first they long learn to extend rallies. Then they learn to extend points. Then they learn to extend games. Then they learn to extend sets. Then they learn to ex- extend matches. Then they learned to extend tournaments. They learned how to make semis and finals of tournaments. Then they learned to extend careers, uh, seasons and careers. But I think about this. What a difference. What if would you have ever broken through? I mean, you know, you think of the, the sequences of doing that. But then also as a coach, Dennis, and you know this, I realized that you took a Wimbledon championship instead of nowadays you would have said, I'm going after the money and your career might have been cut short, but instead you went back and you got the coaching from George Tolley at Southern Cal. 
you had to back it up. Now, after winning Wimbledon, you had to back it up by winning NCAA titles and things. And you went back and filled in all the holes in your game and stuff. Could you talk about that a little bit, or the value of you going back to college after being a champion? Well, I was I was certainly blessed to be able to play at USC and play in the the Pacific 12 or whatever it's now called, but against UCLA and all those good schools and all those good players and and. Uh, I learned a lot in college. I would have not been ready to play on the pro tour and just because I won one tournament. And I think that college tennis gives you an opportunity to develop lots of things uh, other than being a tennis player. And so I always knew there's a chance I'd get hurt. And, and if I got hurt, what was I going to do? So I, my mom was a teacher and she stressed, you know, get the education. And so I got the education, uh, able to play against great players and I was able to develop my game and uh, you know a lot of these guys think they got to be like Michael Chang and the courier these guys and turn pro without college experience and I think it's a big mistake because there's no record of the guys that turn pro that didn't make it there only there's only the record of the guys that did and there's so many guys out there that jump too soon they're not ready for it and it's it's brutal. I mean, the competition is so tough. It wasn't as tough then as it is now. There weren't that as many good players, obviously. But now, I mean, college gives you a chance to, to improve the weak areas of your game, and and uh, that's an important thing. So one, one of the things. Know, no, I just saying one of the things that I have always said when people have a flash of brilliance. That shows your top end, but it does not reveal or expose your bottom end often. And the top end and the bottom end, on a scale of 1 to 10, if your top end's a 9 and your bottom end's a 4, you'll play big at times, but you'll never be in the big time. So your top end winning Wimbledon doubles there with Osuna at you know, age 17 was remarkable. But... Uh, the point is going back to college and filling in all the holes in your game and doing the work and growing, you brought up the bottom end where you were so consistent for years. I mean, come on, 14 Grand Slam finals and all of those things. But you were you played in the big time because you took care of bringing your bottom end that was sort of a nine and your top – or an eight and your top end was a nine. You know, so, um, you know, that's so different than now where the marketing just rules someone's career. Um, and the Davis Cup, and could you talk a little bit as we go forward here um, about the Davis Cup? Of course, you, the Davis Cup, you were on the team from, I think, gosh, you were on there early at uh, – 60 you were you were on there for four years from 68 to 71 or something but then you were to coach well, 72 73 74 and 75 now here here's i remember i first made the davis cup team when i was in 1960 the year i won the doubles and i played 1960 to 1966 and then i turned pro in 66 and of 66 so i didn't couldn't play but then i became the coach for the, the U.S. Davis Cup team, 68 to 72, and then I was the captain from 72 to 75, and we wow. won five out of years, uh, 
and I was a coach to the teams with Arthur Ashe and, and Charlie Passerell and, and Cliff Ritchie and Frank Proline. And so it was a, I was a, a, a mean contract pro. And so they wouldn't allow us to play. And then finally open tennis came along and, and Davis cup opened up for everybody to play. So it was right. a great experience. Years Davis Could you cup. talk about that? How pros were, you were part of the handsome eight. That was the first barnstorming pro tournament. They had before open tennis if you became a pro, let's see, Gonzalez and you, and um, uh, um, I'm trying to think. Um, Newcomb and, see, and Roach. Rosewall, Newcomb, Roach, uh, Nikki Pillaver, Laver. All the contract pros were prohibited from playing in the Grand Slams up until 1968, the first Grand Slam that was open. And that was the U.S. That's where Arthur Ashe won it. But Tom Ocker was the professional. So Arthur got the trophy and Tom Ocker got the cash. He got $10,000 for winning the U.S. Open in 1968. Now you compare 68 to 2018. Uh, I think the winning purse for the U.S. Open in 2018 was $2,000,000.5, $2.5 and And you can just see how the money's just kind of grown and grown, gotten bigger and bigger and so, like you said, the, the commercialism and the money is, is kind of the lure of, of young players turning pro too soon, and both men and women. And uh, so I played when there was we, – if we had a tournament first, for total purse of $10,000 when we were playing the Handsome Eight, we were ecstatic. I mean, the winner got $1,500, and if you lost in the first round, you got $50. So – you know, you didn't want to lose too many times in the first round, but it was fun. It was, it was, you know, we didn't know any better. It was, we were playing. We were playing against the best players, we thought, and, and we weren't playing in, in great arenas, but we were doing what we liked to do. And uh, For example, so, where, know, what, would your, what would your tour be like, uh, say, the busiest time? How, where would you go, cities, and, and what was it like? Can you express that a little bit? Yes, we played uh, – we played what I call the death march through France one one time. We played eight cities in nine days, eight different cities throughout France. We, we'd finish about 12 o'clock at night and get on the train and go to the next city and get into the hotel and have a hit and then go to sleep and then get up and do it again. So we, we did a couple of those deals. They were all over the world. I mean, we went to South Africa, Australia, anywhere where they'd have us and most of the tennis people knew the pros were were the top. I knew when I was an amateur that Pancho Gonzalez was the best player in the world, and and Rod Laver, when he turned pro, was going to be the next best player. And Lou Hode was a great player. And I had no, you know, misconceptions that because I was the number one American amateur player that I was the number one American player. I wasn't. Gonzalez was the number one player, but. I got all the publicity because I was an amateur. And so the pros lived in obscurity for a long time. They kept the game going. Jack Kramer started the, 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 the you know, the one-night stands, the cities, the 100 matches. Uh, Gonzalez would play the best player coming out of the, the amateur game for 100 matches. And, and uh, it went all, they actually played in Bakersfield where I ball boys for Poncho and, and, and those guys. And uh, so it was uh, – it was different, obviously. It was 
enjoyable. We got along, you know, we didn't have any entourages. We didn't have any, you know, much press. We've seldom had a match televised, but we were getting better. That's why I turned pro because I wanted to play against the best players. The history and the heritage of the game, as you look back on it now, Dennis, I, I won't go deep into this, but if I had not worked one year for Harry Hopman in Port Washington, New York, right out of college, I was headed to try to coach high school basketball. But I was so impressed. It was not by gimmicks. It wasn't by fluff. It wasn't by money. It was the fact that Harry Hopman might have been the toughest coach I was around. I had basketball coaches in high school that were tough guys. I had John McLeod, who later coached the Phoenix Suns. And I, you know, I had some tough, great, great men coaching me, but the history and the heritage, I remember I would hang on the words that he would talk about and uh, just the history and the heritage. Could you talk briefly as we set the table here for, um, you know, what we're going to get into here in a minute, but how we were taught or you were taught early to honor the history and the heritage of the game and the prestige. You talk reverently about Gonzalez. Uh, and of course, in Kramer, you know, and, the, and those guys. And Osuna, we always, later we always said, who is the best doubles player in the world? And everybody always used to say it was whoever played with Rafael Osuna, you know. And, and uh, But um, the bottom line, could you talk about how that perspective evolved into, there was sort of a combination of it all, you know, when open tennis and then through the 70s, I think that's what created a tennis boom, people who just were in love with the tennis. But then, of course, the marketing was prime for that right then. It just was fertilizer. The marketing was just like fertilizer ready for something to bloom. But uh, could you speak to the reverence that everyone had for those champions and things, the history of it? Yes, uh, it's... it's uh... You know, sort of like golf has that still today. And, and, of course, when I was growing up, I was always watching or hearing, listening to Wimbledon on the radio as a kid. And and, and that was the number one tournament. The, the U.S. Open was huge also. But uh, as a kid, I, I just hope someday I might even get to go watch. But we had, as, as I started to play better and better, we were taught by the older players that you respect – the champions, the guys that are the best, and you, you want to be around them. You want to be listening to them. He, he, Jack Kramer was a brilliant guy, a smart guy, a very wonderful tennis player that most people don't even know, and he was their guy on the Wilson racket, the Kramer racket. And so, if we got a Kramer racket, we were ecstatic because Jack Kramer's name was on it. And then, if I got the meeting, which I did, and you know, he helped me and. And the, and the thing about which was good then was the American players would always help the younger players coming up. And and that was sort of taught to us as a younger player when I was on the Junior Davis Cup team and Billy Talbert, a great tennis player and a great – he was the official referee of the U.S. Open and a wonderful man. He would he was the captain of the Junior Davis Cup team when I was on it. And, and he taught us those things. He'd been a captain of the American Davis Cup team that had won in Australia. And so it was always like, okay, when if you get to be good, you help people that, that are coming up. And, and so that's what the, the world was like then. I mean, we were all trying to emulate Gonzalez, or we were trying to be the number one amateur in the world. And 
and and win and get better. And we respected those guys. The the I think it's still the same at the top level to the point where Federer and and Nadal and Djokovic all respect each other. I don't know if they're really out to make the game better for the for the masses. I think, you know, maybe they're not, maybe they are. I don't know. But it was for us it was a great experience to learn from the better guys and and I, I don't think that we would have been as good if we hadn't had that. And it wasn't like I'm worried about this guy coming up and taking my spot. It was like we want this guy to get better and and they all they all helped. I mean everybody helped me. So what what happened? First of all, I'm not going to do a commercial. If you if um if I'm pushing too many things in there in a hurry, I could go to a commercial, but I I want to use this time very well. Um but I'd like very much if you could so what happened is it as simple as once money got into tennis, they started marketing. You know, I always say they, you know, marketed uh, the worst drink ever by saying, hey, astronauts drink Tang. You know? <laughs> and and the, bottom, the bottom line on the thing was we started marketing once there was money in it. The marketeers, as we call them, took over. And now, you know, it's simple, and I don't want to go to college tennis yet, but it's as simple as people will say, even coaches, hey, we got to put people in the stands instead of we need to honor the game. We need to respect the heritage. What happened, and when do you see it like it, it happened? Well, I think it was a gradual process that, that- – that the slam events, the grand slam singles events kept trying to outdo each other with the, the, the purse, the number, the number of dollars that the winner got was always the first thing they published. The U S open raises their prize money, $2 million and the winner gets 2.5 or 10 million. And, and it just kept escalating and you keep wondering when, where is it going to stop? And, and so I feel like, yes, the commercial part of the game is so big and so vast that most people don't understand it and the usta which i've had my differences with for for many years there's a lot of nice people that work in that organization but there are a lot of people that that get the power stick in their hand and they just lose their minds and make decisions that don't help Um, the usta is not growing the game the usta is not putting facilities and new places with all the money they have they build a place down in florida worth a hundred million dollars that's great but why isn't there a facility in nashville or a public facility with a ust sponsor so the money got so big and it's still getting bigger and bigger with television and worldwide television that you know i mean i think roger Federer is one of the wealthiest guys that's ever played any sport and and the same with Nadal, and the same with Djokovic. And on the women's side, they're all Serena Williams, you know, Venus Williams. And so nothing against them winning the money and making the money for endorsements. But I think that the game has lost sight of, like you said, the values. The, the, what, what are the good things that come out of playing tennis? What, what are the good things that come out of an interclub match and, and, the, and the health benefits and the, all the good things that come from being outside and playing or being indoors when it's the weather's bad. I think that's kind of been shut aside. And, and so, yeah, college tennis is the, is the first thing that's been hammered 
from when I was playing. I left because of the the, the, the stupid rules that were being put in, and now they've even changed. When you were a more. coach at SMU, right? You say when you left yeah. at SMU, they were yeah, right, right. That they started putting probably early '90s. Yeah, it was about right then, wasn't it? Um, yeah. They put in. They started putting in all the restrictions on hours you could practice and matches you could play and and all those things. Right. Yeah. They they put a restriction on me throwing out the balls to my my team in the off season. I couldn't do that. So I just said this is this is absolutely crazy, and I had enough. And of course, I was at SMU when we had the death penalty, so that didn't help either. But but again. You know, and they were talking about all these restrictions about hours and stuff. And and generally speaking, tennis and swimming, golf are all athletics. You know, where the students are are way above average, and not where the other sports maybe have problems with academics. We were all doing fine, and so we had to suffer and shut down our practices and time we could be on the court with them. And I said, hey, that's not what I signed up for. And so I said, that's it. And uh, it's sad because it's even progressed to a, a more of a, a dumbed down situation with doubles, for example, doubles. Most people in the country play more doubles than singles. So why is doubles not featured? I don't understand that. It's, it's yep. even on the pro. And so in, in college tennis, it's a one set, no ad, horrible. system. Laughable. And, <laughs> yeah, crazy. And 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 you know the other thing, Chuck. There was a match here recently. USC and and Texas played, and USC won. And there was a great match going on that 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 had to stop mid match. It was a great match because the score was four points for USC, and they stopped the match. Well, technically, you could play the whole season for a school, and if you had a long match every time, you'd have no record. It's absolutely crazy. And so they're all talking about, well, we need to do this because it takes too long. It takes way too long. We want to get television into the college game. Guess what? Golf is still an 18-hole match. And when golf goes to a one-hole match for the title, then then we know – I don't know what we know. We know we're all nuts. But, but it's just yep. sad to see that. And so I'm determined to try to make a difference uh, – with all those issues, uh, the one set tie break and four game sets. And, you know, we didn't have any of that stuff. I asked one of the kids here, have you ever played a best of five set match? He said, no. I said, you need to play a best of five set match. So you learn how to play throughout a long period of time and your game will get better. And I learned, so I used to play practice Davis cup matches when I was a kid in Bakersfield and we play five sets, and I learned so much. Now they play one set, and then they if they lost the set, they stop, and then they say, okay, I've had enough. They don't even play two two out of three anymore. So it's killing our game. It's killing the development of the game. And, uh, gosh, I just, I just wish enough people would say, pick up, you know. I want to ask about that here a second. I want to just do the history. And, of course, I remember so well the fantastic job you were doing at SMU. And, uh, you know, uh, and you were in the educational part of it, trying to groom players. And, and so was I and so was many coaches. 
about 1992, folks, they brought in these rules that really dumbed the sport down. And for why they brought them in, I have no idea other than, Dennis, than they wanted immediate parity. In other words, when you shorten things or when you make rules like this, again, academics was not an issue with tennis, but they brought in some random results. Now, the Ivy Leagues had a rule, everybody, that you could play 18 matches a year. Now, anybody that was doing well, SMU or Clemson or UCLA or Southern Cal or Stanford, you were playing 35 or 40 matches. Your players actually had a player that played over 70 matches one year with all the tournaments. That's throughout a whole year. Now, your players got better. And I, I believe it was done for parity reasons and to try to dumb down the people who are running to the open field. You know, it's it's a typical thing to bring the cream back in and stir it some more and then make everybody average. You're doing that academically and whatever. So whether it was conscious or not, but I really do think it was some jealousies of the, you know, the teams who weren't training as hard. You took away work ethic. Then it comes down to basically God-given ability or it takes, you know, opportunities given by the schools to take away the good old work ethic. So what happened, then the schedules changed. People couldn't play as much. And guess what? It opened up Pandora's box as far as recruiting internationally. Everyone said, well, you can't build players now, so let's go overseas and Bring in today, uh, Dennis. I don't know if you know this. Eighty percent of our college players are inter- from other countries. We don't have any wow. prejudice. I know you don't towards other players from other countries, but it was never set up. For example, I always use the example to jump on this bandwagon. Title Nine was not set up to protect women from Portugal, Spain, or Russia. It was set up to protect USA girls and get them scholarships. But women's is 80% or so is, is are foreign players. And now it's, 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 if you're a good player in the United States of America, you're ranked fifth in your state, good luck getting a scholarship. You have to be top 50. If you're not top 50, you have to be, you, you're going to be competing against 50 other countries, top five or top 10 players. And now with the Internet, that's open that wide open. And people might argue, hey, they brought so much. Look, Harry Hopman or Dennis Vandermeer. Sure, they did. International, it's an international sport, but college scholarships were not set up that. Now, the one thing I would like to go to here, the market value, I never have worried about professional athletes making whatever the market value is because if you think about the Rolling Stone or, or the Eagles or, you know, Dagon, John Travolta or anybody, they're able to go market value. And once you're a professional athlete, I think that's okay. But where we messed up was the marketeers marketing everything from daggone wristbands to headbands to rackets to changing the rackets. The equipment change was not handled. The players didn't do that. The marketeers of the different rackets, whether it was Prince or Wilson or Head or whatever, they determined the ball striking changing where ball striking overcame movement. The average, and I'm going to move on here quickly, but the average point if the ball I hit a ball to Dennis Rawson and came back to me it used to be four seconds now it's 2.1 seconds so the game got twice as fast so ball striking overcame the symmetry of the movement so the symmetry the natural flow of the game was changed I was watching the Houston tournament last night on TV and I was interested in watching 
daggone the kid from Pittsburgh, you know, playing Sam Query. And, you know, I said, hey, this is going to be good because the counterpuncher is going to be a Fratangelo, Bjorn Fratangelo, Dennis. They're playing there in Houston. And I was just, I was saying, hey, man, he's going to be able to neutralize Sam's offense. Well, with the rackets and things, he wasn't able to. The first set, I turned the thing off because it was the points were not even interesting. Even with that, it was, you know, there were four-ball rallies, which was disappointing. But, you know, you can comment on that. But I wanted to ask you about the history and the heritage and the damage we are doing. How do, how do players that you played with, I mean, the Lavers and the Rose Walls and the Dagon, all of the players, whether, you know, Chris Everett, who you coached, how do they feel about the – I hate this thing, the bastardizing of the game or the diluting, polluting, and prostituting of the greatest game ever invented. How do most of y'all feel about this? Well, I I certainly know that uh, we all, when they changed the Davis Cup rules just last year to the format where this group from Spain guaranteed $2 billion to the ITA, over a period of years, I mean, all the former players said that, you know, two out of three sets in one spot and, and no best of five. I mean, you're, you're killing the history of the Davis Cup. You're killing the excitement of the Davis Cup. Why change it? It's been doing well. Well, all about the money. Uh, Emerson and Labor and, you know, all the, all the guys I played with, that, that you know, we shake our heads. It's kind of like – the damage is done, and, and we, we find out after the fact we can't do anything about it because it's already decided that, that you know, and the pros. Who decides? Huh? Who decides? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to jump in there, but who decides? Well, the ITF. The ITF decided they had a vote, and every nation supposedly voted to change the Davis Cup format because the smaller nations were promised money. I'm sure the top nations were said that it's going to simplify the schedule and you can all play it in like a world cup soccer match and uh, title and, and it'll be in two or three weeks. And so now the guy, Dennis, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in there, but they, I yeah. heard they got everybody Haggerty and those guys got everybody down to Orlando and squeezed everybody. I mean, is that what you heard? I mean, it doesn't sound like they had any of the greats down there. These were all marketing bot guys. I mean, no, they, didn't I, any, they didn't talk to anybody. We found out that they were proposing this change, we meaning the former Davis Cup players, after the fact that it was a pretty much accomplished deal. And so there was nothing. We, we I sent out something. Uh, Leighton Hewitt was adamant about it. Uh, Australia's Davis Cup guys, Labor, all those guys, you know, uh, all all the American guys that play Davis Cup, just you know. But I think what happens is that they just say, "Oh well," and and I, I, I there's n- nothing I can do. That's what they feel like. It's already done. They hope, you know, I I, I don't want the thing to flop, but it, in in this year, but in one way I do because will they change it back to best of five? No. They're going to come up with something else, and it maybe be a right. uh, spin the to see who wins. So they right. did that down in integrity. It's all political how they make people decide, and that's a, that's something that maybe uh, 
uh, Hannity could look into when he gets tired of working for our country. But, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that the average USTA member has no clue about. And they never will. It's just the, the, the amount of money. When I was the captain, I mean, all these guys are taking the Concorde to London instead of taking a commercial jet. They're, they're, I mean, they took the Concorde, which is like five times expensive, all on the USTA's account. And so nobody questions that. You know, just, and, Chuck, the other thing about the Davis Cup in America, they don't do anything for the former players. They, they say, well, we'll give you two tickets and hope you can come on your own expense and support the American Davis Cup team. Now, last year they said, we'll give you $500 towards your hotel room, and you still come and support the Davis Cup team. Instead of every where a former guy played, like Cliff Ritchie, and should be brought in, in a, if there's a match in Austin, he should be brought in and, and, and treated royally. Amen. But here's for the U.S. And, and the Davis Cup. But that doesn't happen. And so maybe – you know, maybe our efforts as we continue, I'm going to try hard along with you and, and the other voices that will stand up and say this is wrong, you know, try to change this. Because the, the, you know where it's really hurting? You know, I just talked to some people at my club here, and I said, did you have any say in, in a, a third-set tiebreaker for this league stuff? Mm-hmm. And they said no. It was, uh, you know, it was – done and so we can have no no say about it so they just accept it well i think that's got to stop i think they gotta we gotta organize and say this is wrong this is bad for the game and hopefully people yep. the people will listen to us dennis this is year eight for me being active trying to get things going i started the american tennis patriots i even talked to a guy the other day i'm trying to get 50 t-shirts out there with the american tennis patriots Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God, as Thomas Jefferson said. But I've tried to figure this out. Old people, like, look, after 60 or so, people go, ah, what the heck, you know, I I can't do any good. And they sort of, it's amazing to me how people just say that. And, you know, they're right because you feel like you're on an island. I looked my first couple years, I was a scaredy cat. I mean, I was like, oh, I better not make them mad. Better not make them mad. Then I realized they're not doing any good for anybody. There is a deep state of tennis. These guys are like invisible people behind a, a curtain, like the Wizard of Oz pulling pulling uh, daggone levers. But old people are sort of say, I don't think I could. Young people are scaredy cats deluxe because of the Internet and things. Like the Internet and, look, cell phones, we have, we've never had such great com- – sources of communication but so few relationships i can talk to you like i am today because i competed against you as a coach and i know the brotherhood even though we didn't have to talk i felt the competition the straight up heads up competition and you as a competitor came to me at one time in my life when i was having a rough time remember you had the you got me to give my testimony one time, my Christian testimony, and I, look, you cared about me as a brother in arms, even though we were competitors, but that's the bond that was made. Young people now 
just want to fit in. They don't care about standing out. So the relationships are not built, even though the communication. Then I think middle-aged people got the golden, I always call it the golden handcuffs. They're 15, 20 years in their career, and they don't want to rock the boat. But, folks, we got to rock the boat here a little bit because our history and heritage will die. And with yep. it, all of these records that you had, 27, I didn't talk about the 27 USA titles. I don't know, maybe 27 gold balls you have. But, Dennis, those gold balls were not given out haphazardly by one set of no-ad tennis when you played, correct? That's true. <laughs> yeah. And and the thing about it is that I totally agree that when, when say, the club member who's 50-plus, and they're, they're not happy with it, but they're not going to rock the boat unless unless we get something going that says this is wrong. And and where's the money going to the USTA? How come they have un, un, unimaginable amounts of money that, you know, they send the senior teams, our senior teams, U.S. senior teams overseas, they don't supply them with equipment. They don't supply them with a, a, a ticket for their wife. They send uh, – you know, you can have $500 if you want to represent the United States. Well, that's absolutely a shame that they should pay. They should get business class or first to go to Europe and represent the United States instead of having to scrape up their own money. If the USD had no money, then I would say, okay, but they're loaded. And the U.S. Open is just the biggest money-making machine in the world. I think it's the number one sporting event for income counting everything in the world. So, yeah, nobody says much about it. But uh, I've Javier heard Palenque, folks, Javier Palenque, he has a website. I think he was going to send you the stuff, but he has all the facts. I had him on my show about three or four months ago, and he has all the, the statistics. They said, look, the USTA is supposed to be a nonprofit. Seventy percent of what the USTA does, folks, should be going into infra- into the – development of the people out there instead of a hundred million dollar complex they should have put a million dollar into a hundred complexes around the country right dennis and and uh he has all the statistics now we have to get organized i want to go somewhere with this if i can we got about 10 minutes here and I, i want you if you could obviously there is a deep state in tennis there's a saying, there's nothing more pathetic than small people in big positions. It happens all the time. We need big people in big positions. That means the Dennis Ralstons, you know, the Bob Lutzes, the, you know, all of the people who, uh, who have been pillars of our game, Dennis. We need your help. I'm reaching out to you publicly here and say we need your help. And daggone it to Sean Hannity, who really had a – Skin in the game, you know, as his son was a junior player, we need him in here. I've asked him a long time ago to please stay in there and battle for tennis because we're in trouble. But I want to put you in charge of things here just for a 10-minute period and give us some insights of things that you would do if you had the power now. Somebody said, okay, Dennis, you're in charge. What do we need to save American tennis to save tennis? Well, I think you made a very good statement about a hundred million dollar complex. I would put a hundred complexes for a million dollars throughout the United States, and I'd fund them so they could be operational and they could 
help the kids that can't afford lessons and they could help the people to learn and enjoy the game. And there, there are lots of places that, you know, they don't have clubs. They don't, they don't have a public courts and nobody teaches. So that'd be the first thing I would try to get a commissioner to handle the, be able to stand up for players like club players, you know, the local players where they have a voice. A commissioner of tennis, a commissioner of yeah. U.S. tennis. Instead of an, instead of a CEO, we need a commissioner, right? We need a commissioner. And, and it would be somebody that knows the game, that has a history of the game, hopefully, and wants to see the game continue to grow. And so I would – that you know, you kind of caught me off guard. I never thought what I would do. I would, uh, I don't know what else I'd do. I would, I would eliminate the huge prize money for Davis Cup participation. I'd make it like golf, where Tiger Woods you got to win five thousand dollars for playing for the U.S. that goes to his foundation or his charity of his choice. He he chooses to play because he knows how great it is to represent our country. I'm not blaming the players, our players, American players, that get paid. It's obviously if I was one of them, I'd say, okay, they're paying me, thanks. But it's not right to pay our guys a hundred grand to play a match, and 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 the captain sixty thousand dollars a tie. That's what's been happening in the past. That money ought to go to grassroots. That money ought to go to developing the game. Same with the women. You know, make the federation cup the same way. Federation Cup is coming to San Antonio in, in a week, 10 days, actually. And the sad part about it is there's been nothing, no publicity at any of the clubs here in Austin. I just happened to know because somebody said, oh, did you know the Fed Cup's going to be in San Antonio? Well, that's ridiculous. The U.S. with the, the websites they have, they could send out to every single club in the area. Here are the ticket prices. This is You can buy a group of tickets. Your club can come. Well, who knows how many people are going to go? They picked Easter weekend to have the tie. That is not smart. I don't care who is doing that, made that decision, but it's Easter weekend. The second day is on Easter Sunday. So likely it's not going to be sold out. It's not going to be uh, – hopefully the people will go. I'm trying to get people to go, and obviously they have to time their church going and all that stuff, but that's just absolutely ridiculous. They would schedule the – High on Easter Sunday in the United States, so somebody screwed up there. But how about college tennis? How about college huh? tennis? What what would you do to okay. save college tennis? Other than the scoring, we've we've talked and I've talked so much on the program about no ad tennis and how it kills development and all of the things we. I don't think people need to hear about that. What would you do about college tennis? And then I want to ask you one last question that's the biggest question, okay? Okay, college tennis, I would go back to what we, what, the way we played it. I would go back to three doubles matches, best of three sets. Then we play the singles, or we play the singles first and then the doubles. Like, we had long matches, that's for sure. Yeah, but I never and we had double hitters. Yeah. And I never complained that I was out there for eight hours or ten hours. It wasn't a question of, of how much time. Unfortunately, or fortunately, college tennis, the NCAAs ought to be on national television. That, that, that would be great. But not a lot of college matches are going to be 
filmed and watched, maybe the cable companies will do that because they're looking for events. But not to say that you're shortening the, the scoring system in the games so that college tennis can be fit into a – That's a ruse, though. Dennis, we talked about that in a minute. That's a ruse. I'm com- that's a red herring. They put that out there so they would sound like they were into education. They did college first, abbreviated, because then they could push it into juniors. And don't you see in five or six years from now, junior players and college players, if they go into the pros, they're never going to argue. See, right now they don't have all of the pros in to abbreviated scoring. So I really believe the abbreviated scoring, they want it pushed into the pros for easy, random results for gambling profits. $70 million last year was given to the ITF. You know what they got in return? Live stream scoring on 30-second delays to all the gambling headquarters, and now gambling 60,000 opportunities to gamble on tournaments last year in the men's circuit. Minor tournaments, and guess what? People are even going to be gambling on college events now like they do football and basketball and everything. So that's what they wanted, ultimately. That was a ruse. Look, they made college and high school and after-school activity. So it's disgusting. It's putrid. It makes me vomit with what tennis has meant to my life. And it should, to all of the pros that you know, Dennis, all of the old-timers, it's about gambling. It's not about them being slick and trying to get it on TV. They want a TV format. We'll do a hoochie-coochie show if they ever get our teams on, you know. But yeah. that's not why it's about. Well, that, that, I, know, I did not know that until you pointed that out to me, that, that that's what the ITF did. And that's what was. That's why these young players were getting banned from playing, because they, they, they fixed some matches. And... I was thinking, who would be betting on these things? And now I know. And and I don't think most of the tennis public, you know, that plays no, they don't. any that this is going on. Any clue yeah, at Pat all. Cash, so, Pat Cash made a comment that the live stream scoring is like uh, drug vending machines on playgrounds. It has opened yep. up the Pandora's box for gambling world to take over tennis just like it's taken over basketball just oh god help us baseball i think the but you i I don't want to go to baseball here but i think they're juicing the ball for more home runs dennis okay this is the biggest question i could ask you and god bless you thank you for this great interview but i got the biggest question how do we get organized and come on help us with people out there i'm going to be trying to get you to help me create a good list to get all the older pros and the great greater the greatness the great old greats to to join but how are we going to get organized what's your thoughts well i i i'm i'm in your corner a hundred percent i'll help and and yeah I, I started thinking about the guys that that there's a guy that was a tournament director in, in portland brian parrott who who is oh gosh yes. the, the american tennis hall of fame which being shot down by the ITF and the International Tennis Hall of Fame. And his his argument is that American players have no tennis hall of fame. Every other country does, Australia and France and so he's he's a go getter. He's a mover. And we gotta just come up with guys like that. We gotta get former players and we gotta get some of the younger players that are out there now playing that, that can recognize the history of the game. And maybe it's Curry or maybe it's 
you know, believe it or not, maybe Macron would think that way. I don't know. I mean, we need somebody that has some clout and that that can help us get to the the people that can can make things happen to stir it up to 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 balk the USTA to to go against their their. I guess it's like a, a dictatorship that they 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 run and all these things are passed and nobody argues, nobody steps up because it's you just like you said, oh, I'm too old, I don't care, and then it gets passed. Like I heard, Chuck, this cannot be true, but I heard they had their annual meeting here in Austin, which is like two and a half weeks ago, and then they came up with this new idea to implement the speed of the game. An ace would be worth two points. And a drop shot would be worth two points if it twice. Honestly, that was in print. So you'd like to go watch Isner and Query play. That would be like, I mean, watching paint dry. But it's it's scary what they're trying to do. So, yes, I'm with you. I will help as best I can. And, and hopefully some of the people listening will help a little bit and say this is wrong and we got to step up. I, it couldn't have been said better. And, and all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing, Edmund Burke said. It, it's really, really important. And uh, I cannot thank you enough for being on the program today. Uh, you know, God bless you in whatever you do. I, I hope that I'll be able to stay in touch with you and we'll have you again sometime soon, you know, Dennis. So I, I just thank you very, very much. And, and I, I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. We're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up here. And, 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 folks, look, the sleeping giants are out there, like Dennis says. High school tennis is a sleeping giant. We don't need – we have 400,000 kids playing, but we only have 26,000 people playing tournaments. Small town tennis USA, so we need small towns to go to your local colleges and get somebody in there teaching tennis. We need you to stay gone, stand up and speak out. Stand up and speak out. Enough, enough of this nonsense. When you champion the weak, you weaken the real champions. This is ludicrous that we are not standing up and speaking out for the game. Do not be afraid. These people cannot hurt you. They can't hurt you. The USTA is not a mafia. They're not going to send hitmen in the middle of the night. Neither is the ITF or the ITA. They are not going to do that. It took me a year or two to realize, daggone it, we need to stand up and speak out. All that it takes for evil to prosper is for us to do nothing. I want to thank Dennis Ralston for one of the greatest people uh, in, 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 in tennis. And God bless you, Dennis, for what you do and what you're saying. And we're going to be back next week, and I'm going to get more. There's a guy out in California that's been listening to my program, and I'm going to find out. J.P. Weber told me the guy wants to debate me, and I'm going to find out who is, and we're going to be on, and let's continue this. Let's take it. Let's take it to the house, and let's see what can happen. God bless you. This is Coach Chuck America.
Coach Chuck Creasy reminding you that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. God bless you. We'll see you next week on American Tennis. <laughs>